Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Urbanowitz, your host for the Throwback FDNY podcast series. In this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by my friend and co-host, retired FDNY division chief and EMS historian, James Martin, as we mark National EMS Week, which honors the heroic contributions of those who work on the medical front line. Remember, you can listen to all our past episodes of Throwback FDNY by going to the website of the New York City Fire Museum at nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny and choosing the digital platform you use for listening to podcasts. Each show has three segments going back in time about the FDNY and its history. Now, let's start this month's show. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, the department ventures into the domain of pre-hospital medical care in 1914. In 1966, bread box ambulances are introduced in New York City. And in 1974, the city graduates its first class of paramedics. In episode 12 of our podcast series, I told you about Dr. Harry M. Archer, who was appointed as an FDNY honorary medical officer in 1907. You may recall that Dr. Archer responded on a voluntary basis to all greater alarms and rendered medical aid to injured members. Well, in 1914, Dr. Archer brought his services to a new level. In that year, the department purchased its first ambulance. Well, not exactly the first. The first ambulance was put in service in 1906, but it was only for horses. The 1914 rig was for humans. To look at photographs of the ambulance's interior, you are immediately struck by the lack of a movable wheeled stretcher as we are used to today. There was a bed on the driver's side of the vehicle with storage cabinets below. The bed could slide out to make it at least a little bit easier to place a patient on it and into the ambulance itself. On the passenger or officer's side was a hinged bench, once again with storage below. When raised, the bench provided more room in the aisle and when lowered, it could accommodate either a second patient or the doctor. The ambulance was quartered in the firehouse of Engine Company 56 on West 83rd Street. Why was this location chosen? It was because Dr. Archer lived on West 82nd Street. So when a second alarm sounded, the chauffeur would drive Dr. Archer's bus, as it was known, and pick him up on Columbus Avenue. That is, if he hadn't already run the one-tenth of a mile to the firehouse. By the way, that firehouse is the quarters of Engine Company 74 today, where a photo of Dr. Archer hangs on the wall. At a fire, Dr. Archer would set up the ambulance as a first aid station. Photographs exist showing such an arrangement with folding chairs and cots for patients and folding tables for medical supplies. There was even a flag that could be flown declaring it as dressing station, fire department. To be clear, this ambulance was not intended to respond to calls for aid from the general public. It was used for FDNY members only, either at a fire as the dressing station or to transport members to the hospital, whether from a fire or when off duty. If it was set up in its dressing station mode, one of the hospital or municipal ambulances would transport the injured person while the department ambulance remained on scene. That said, I found an article in the New York Sun newspaper with a story about how Dr. Archer sustained a broken nose when responding to a call to treat a woman at an elevator accident. So I suppose there may have been times when the department ambulance did, in fact, provide services to the general public under certain circumstances. This ambulance was replaced in 1923 with a Cadillac ambulance donated to the department 
by Honorary Deputy Chiefs Edward and William Kenny, in memory of their father, Battalion Chief Thomas Kenny. The first annual report for this ambulance stated that it responded to 92 alarms and special calls, treated 278 patients, and traveled 1,401 miles. Quite impressive, I'd have to say. So began a long history of FDNY ambulances. But through the years, their service continued to be reserved for FDNY members only. At its height in 1965, the department fielded four ambulances, two in Manhattan, one in Brooklyn, and one in Queens. On a side note, when the FDNY Medical Division was opened in 1947, it and Ambulance 1, and later Ambulance 4, were located at 278 Spring Street, the current location of the New York City Fire Museum. Ambulance 3 in Queens was disbanded in 1974, and on September 25th, 1987, the remaining companies became mobile medical units, basically providing non-emergency transportation of members to and from medical facilities. The end finally came on June 20th, 1995, in anticipation of the next big change, the merger of New York City Emergency Medical Services into the FDNY. The Department's service of administering pre-hospital emergency care to the people of the city of New York has grown ever since. Hello everyone, I'm Jennifer Brown, the new executive director of the New York City Fire Museum. Thank you for listening to our Throwback FDNY podcast. We invite you to become a member of our wonderful cultural institution in Lower Manhattan. We preserve the history of the fire department in New York City, educate the public on fire and life safety, and celebrate the wonderful traditions of the FDNY. To learn more about our membership program and the perks it offers, go to nycfiremuseum.org. Hello, I'm retired FDNY Division Chief and EMS historian James Martin. I'd like to take you for a ride on a bread box ambulance. Like pre-hospital emergency care, ambulance design evolved slowly over the decades. The first aluminum bread box ambulances arrived in 1966, built on Long Island by Grumman Olson, painted red and white, replacing the 10-year-old blue and gray Department of Hospitals trucks. All were equipped with four-speed manual transmissions requiring the motor vehicle operator, or MVO as they were known, to perform multiple tasks simultaneously, a real challenge to do safely. The bread box nickname came about for two reasons. One, the truck resembled a bread box, and two, many local bakeries like Silver Cup and Wonder used and continue to employ the identical vehicle to deliver their goods to local markets. The mechanical siren was located under the hood where much of the noise was reflected back into the cab and was so loud it would rattle the metal plates in the floor. It was deafening, and the gap around the engine cover allowed noise, heat, and fumes to enter the ambulance. If you drove through an icy puddle, you got a bath. I frequently went home with a headache and wet shoes. The radio control head was mounted above the windshield where only the driver could reach it. You would have the radio handset in your left hand and had to shift gears with your right. There was no power steering, so you definitely needed two hands to steer. Operating the siren, using the horn button, required one more hand. It was a five-hand operation performed by an MVO with only two. On top of that, 
the bread box had no power brakes, no air conditioning, and the heat and the defroster were undependable in the wintertime. The driver's seat was perched on a metal tube and could be adjusted up and down so any size driver could reach the pedals. The only warning lights were a rotating red beacon ray and a pair of alternating warning lights front and rear. In the back, two small overhead lamps illuminated the patient compartment. There was no onboard oxygen and no removable stretcher, just two squad benches along each wall. But the backrests were hinged at the top so you could use them to transport two additional patients. Supine patients were transported to the ambulance primarily on a traditional pole and pad stretcher. There were no seat belts anywhere except a lap belt for the driver. It was a real struggle to get the bus up to 50 miles an hour, and bread boxes were very unstable on a windy day or when trying to make turns over 25 miles an hour. Drivers would routinely remain with the ambulance while the technician would go upstairs alone to evaluate the patient. The NYPD dispatched a radio car on all aided cases, and the cops would assist the technician in removing the patient downstairs. There were no portable radios at the time, so if further assistance was required, the ambulance tech would yell out a street-facing window or would call the dispatcher using the patient's landline telephone to have the MVO come upstairs with whatever was required, usually a stair chair. With only one seat in the cab, the technician, who wore hospital whites, rode standing up in the well, holding on to a vertical steel pole like you were riding on the subway. The tech carried everything in a leather doctor's bag and replenished it at the ER after dropping off the patient. The last version of the bread box was delivered in 1972 and was the first city ambulance with an automatic transmission and the first to feature an onboard oxygen delivery system. On scene, crews used a portable inhalator ventilator known as a Revival Life. These orange and white vehicles were the first with electronic sirens mounted inconveniently under the dashboard by the driver's left leg. In 1980, after 14 years of service, the Breadbox Ambulance was mostly retired from emergency service, the victim of new, enhanced Federal Department of Transportation ambulance specifications. But a few lived on for several more years as spares. One Breadbox was converted to a field communications unit, employed at events such as the New York City Marathon and New Year's Eve Times Square celebration. The New York City Fire Museum shop offers a wide selection of museum souvenirs and FDNY licensed products. To acknowledge the 20th anniversary of the tragic events of September 11, 2001, and the 343 members of the FDNY who gave their lives that day, we are offering several commemorative items, including a Maltese cross decal and lapel pin, a 9-11 Memorial Challenge coin, and a beautiful, high-quality 343 t-shirt. Proceeds from all sales help fulfill our mission to preserve, educate, and celebrate, and to remember the brave men and women of the FDNY, not just on September 11th but every day. You can make purchases at the museum or online by visiting our website www.nycfiremuseum.org forward slash shop. Though it may be difficult to imagine, only 50 years ago there were no paramedics in New York City. Doctors rode the ambulance up until the outset of the Second World War and beginning in 1942 ambulances were staffed by a driver and a nurse's aide with only basic first aid training. 
there was no way to stabilize a critical patient prior to transport, and the process was known as scoop and run. But by 1970, big changes were in the works, following an effort by the federal government to reduce the number of unnecessary deaths caused by motor vehicle accidents and other forms of trauma. In 1973, NYC-EMS pursued a federal Department of Transportation grant to establish a pilot paramedic training program in New York City. To fulfill the requirements of the grant, the proposed area must have a high trauma volume, especially motor vehicle crashes. With nearly 20 miles of limited access highways in 12 square miles and a single trauma center to facilitate statistical analysis, the East Bronx fit the parameters perfectly. The next hurdle was to establish an affiliation with a prestigious medical school and Albert Einstein College of Medicine agreed to participate in the program. Dr. Sheldon Jacobson was appointed the program's medical director. At only 36, Dr. Jacobson had recently established one of the nation's first emergency medicine residency programs and felt a paramedic program would be the perfect complement. The paramedic class consisted of one supervisor, nine ambulance technicians, and nine MVOs. Each morning, Dr. Jacobson would lecture the class for three hours on the acute phase of illness or injury before breaking for lunch. In the afternoon, the paramedic students could be found in the Jacoby ER practicing their assessment and treatment skills alongside medical students and residents. The class graduated on July 7, 1974. Their starting salary was $10,400 a year. The original paramedics wore white shirts and dark blue pants. One of the class members, Kevin Brown, designed the shield-shaped paramedic patch, and nearly half a century later, the same basic design is still used by all 911 paramedics, including the FDNYs. Initially, there were no advanced life support protocols and no medical advisory committee to oversee the paramedics. Dr. Jacobson would approve drugs and therapies as he saw fit. Intubation was not authorized, Though intravenous access and defibrillation, two skills previously authorized for physicians only, were. From the beginning, Dr. Jacobson considered his paramedics an extension of the emergency room. They were treated much the same as medical students and residents, and between calls, the medics would assist the ER staff with basic procedures. When intubation was finally approved, it was the paramedics who would be called upon by the ER staff to perform this life-saving skill. Dr. Jacobson insisted that regular continuing medical education sessions must be held to reinforce the paramedics' diagnostic skills and correct any problems. Following up on admitted patients provided essential feedback on their therapeutic efforts. Formal protocols were soon developed to establish treatment guidelines. Two ALS units covered the Bronx east of the Bronx River Parkway. There were only enough paramedics to staff two ambulances for two tours, meaning that there were no paramedics after midnight. These original two paramedic ambulances were specially modified modular vehicles equipped with telemetry radios. They were the first New York City ambulances to display the Star of Life. The original monitor defibrillator was the PhysioControl Life Pack 4, weighing a hefty 56 pounds. Because the device was originally designed for hospital, not mobile use, it was constantly breaking, and the even larger and heavier Life Pack 3 from the Mobile Emergency Room Vehicle, or MERV, was substituted. Telemetry was sent to Bronx Municipal Hospital.
Within weeks of their deployment to the streets, these fledgling paramedics notched their first cardiac arrest save, a truly remarkable feat that was celebrated in the media when the patient walked out of Jacoby Hospital on his own. Many successes followed, and after two years, the grant was renewed to expand the paramedic program citywide. As additional hospitals came online, their emergency department directors assumed responsibility for their own paramedics, and additional telemetry base stations were established at Bellevue, Metropolitan, Elmhurst, and Kings County hospitals to handle the increased volume. Today, nearly one-third of the FDNY's 4,000-strong EMS members are paramedics, and there are 213 FDNY paramedic ambulance tours on the streets throughout the city every day. And now it's time for our Throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. In what year was the first fire engine put into service in Brooklyn? The answer can be found in our last episode. And remember, you can listen to that and all of our previous episodes by going to nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny. The Throwback FDNY podcast is brought to you by the New York City Fire Museum, the official museum of the FDNY. With help from the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official philanthropic organization of the department. I'd like to thank this month's co-host, Chief James Martin, for joining us and reminding us to celebrate the important life-saving contributions of our frontline medical professionals. I'm Gary Urbanowitz. I'll leave you with this. If you haven't already done so, please consider taking a CPR course because you can save a life. Early CPR and the use of an automated external defibrillator, or AED, have been shown to dramatically increase the chance of survival in victims who experience sudden cardiac arrest. The first few minutes after a person goes into cardiac arrest are the most critical. Bystanders who witness or encounter a person in cardiac arrest are the ones who can maintain blood flow to the vital organs by performing chest compressions to improve a person's chance of survival. The FDNY currently offers both in-person and virtual training options. To sign up for one of the department's free classes or to schedule a class in your community, please contact the FDNY's mobile CPR training unit at 718-281-3888 or go to the website fdnysmart.org CPR. Thanks for listening and be safe.